Well, praise the Lord. This morning, we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and we're in a scripture that is very well known to many of us, as is the case with many scriptures, amen? Especially if you're a, a, a child of God, you're, you're reading the Word of God, and you're, you're learning and growing in the Word of God, and your knowledge of the Lord, um, I think you're familiar with this. And we have heard sermons, we've heard all kinds of commentaries about this scripture, but Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7, and read through verse 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 to 10. And because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I entreated the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses that the power of Christ might dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insult with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. It just makes no sense to our minds if you think about that and you read those words, even as I read those, and if you're listening, it just doesn't make sense to our minds to say that when I'm weak, I'm strong. Come on. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't compute in your mind in a natural sense when you hear those words. I am so glad and I'm so content and I'm satisfied inside that when I'm weak and things are going crazy and haywire and everything is falling apart and I'm so weak and frail, I'm strong. I mean, it's absurd. Think about that. It's absolute absurdity to say something like that in and of itself in the natural. And Paul is saying this, and he's boasting in his weakness in this case, because why? Because God's grace is abounding more and more. I'm thinking of something so amazing in Romans, and I'll get to it later, about how great that grace of God is that abounds to us. It doesn't stop. It keeps coming. You know, this idea of Paul, God's grace here, you know, that unmerited favor, that, that, that blessing that God keeps giving to us, His goodwill towards us that He keeps, pardon my expressions, but dumping out on us. Even when we don't deserve it. And we're undeserving, actually. We deserve, well, we deserve bad stuff. Actually, if you dig into your heart and you realize how, as the Bible says in Jeremiah, how desperately wicked the human heart is. And it's always, every day, and we think of ourselves, and if we're honest, if we're honest, not because... You're putting yourself down to the place where you can't function, but if you're honest, you would realize, frankly, how pathetic our heart is. Sin is always there. It's right around the corner, and it's always trying to pop its head out and wreak havoc and and dominate the situation, dominate our thoughts, and even control our actions if we only will let it do that. But God's grace, even when we're like that, 
He keeps giving us that. It's that goodness of God coming towards us over and over. It's so prominent in the New Testament, isn't it? And we love God's grace. Do you love God's grace? Okay, I'm, I'm, again, as usual, I don't know what it is with this congregation, but at least 40% of you can respond in the affirmative and that you love God's grace. I love God's grace. I love God's grace. If there's nothing else I had, I don't care what you give me or take away. It's all by grace, and I love God's grace. You could take everything else away and take, put as far away as you want. It's all about God's grace. Grace. All about God's grace. You wouldn't be here if it wasn't for that. Right? I love, love God's grace. But God reveals Himself as a God of grace in the Old Testament as well, doesn't He? If we're familiar with Scriptures, the Psalms are full of those things. And even before that, during Moses' time, He says in Exodus chapter 34, 6, God says about Himself, and He reveals Himself to Moses in this way. He says of Himself to Moses... The Lord, the Lord. Lord. And in your Bible, it's small caps, right? Jehovah, Yahweh, it's Yahweh. It's that awesome God who is self-sufficient, eternal, and completely in control, and yet He's so personal. I've said that many times, and if you haven't gotten that yet and reminded you about the small case Lord caps, hopefully you get that. That's that, that, that self-sufficient, eternal, all-powerful, mighty God who still is so personal and is faithful to His people. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. He's full of grace. He's slow to anger and He's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness abounding it keeps coming and it's overflowing and it keeps being poured out over and over and over again he's slow to anger does that mean that god doesn't get angry no 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 he doesn't god's holy he's just he's all those things so yes he will he can't tolerate sin he doesn't like unrighteousness that's not part he can't come close to that or in contact with that in Habakkuk, it even says, the prophet says in, toward the end of the Old Testament, he says, you're so holy that your eyes can't even look at it. That's what he says. You can't come near. That's how holy God is. And yet, God is so gracious, He's slow to anger, and He abounds in that steadfast love and faithfulness, right? Do you remember what the Apostle Paul said at the end of chapter 5? He was talking about, about the, and he says in, in the last verses there, 2021, he says there that where sin abounded, grace abounded even more. Right? And, pardon the expression. But it trumped sin and the law and everything the law says should happen to you because of sin. And he threw it all out and God says, wherever that sin was, God's grace overcame that. It's greater. It can keep being poured out even when there is sin. In fact, that grace was already there displayed in the love of Christ because Paul said in Romans chapter 5 that while we were sinners, he loved us so much that Christ died for our sins. He died for us while we were sinners. That's how gracious, how good God is. His grace abounds. He's just oozing and it's overflowing. There He's so patient. Now we know as Christians and in the Bible, the Bible teaches very clearly. Now, and we could do many studies and sermons on this and you've heard them. But salvation is by grace partly. 
Salvation is by grace from men. I'm starting to get a response because now you're listening. Salvation is by grace alone. That's it. I mean, I, I'm going to try to stay on track, but you know me. That statement alone should move you to tears to repentance for, for either cheapening God's grace or adding to His grace by inserting the law into it again. And then running around and not exhibiting God's grace yourself because freely you have received and freely you're not giving it. Oh God, have mercy. And that, there's the context here, but it leads to a lot of things. But think about that. God's grace abounds and it's by grace alone. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 77 to 8 reminds us that we are not saved by what we have done, but by grace through our faith. So that way we cannot boast. Right? We can't boast. We can't brag about it because you can't earn favor from God. He's, he loves you so much and He's so full of grace. He just gives it to you. He does. Now, you can, whatever, if you want to change that, then argue that with God and go to the Word and you can fight with Him. That's fine. But He will keep pouring out His grace on you. And Paul says that God's grace in his epistles, in a few cases, he says that God's grace is rich. It's the riches of His grace. There's so much. You can, it's a treasure chest that when you open it, you keep pulling all the jewels and coins out and, and they keep coming out. That's what His grace is like. It's so overflowing in richness. And again, in this context, in Exodus chapter 34 that I read earlier, it reminds us that God's grace is so abundant. Abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness is how gracious God is. Paul begins and ends, the Apostle Paul, Essentially, every single, every one of his epistles and letters by mentioning grace. You guessed it, grace. Every single one, essentially. He starts and ends with grace. From grace and peace be to you, to the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. And the list goes on and on. It's always about the grace and peace, the grace of God, the grace of Jesus being extended and growing in it. And let it be to you as I, as I send my letter to you and start. And as I finish, hey, I'm, I'm saying goodbye, but God's grace be with you. And may it be abounding to you. Grace is the context in which we live. We are not under the law. Amen. We're not under the law. We're not. We live in this context of grace. And in John chapter 1 and verse 14, John writes about Jesus. He says that when Jesus came, that grace and truth came through Jesus with Christ. Grace and truth came with Jesus, right? Truth. The truth, of, let me sum it up this way. There's different ways to look at this. The truth is, is that you're so wretched and pathetic because of your sinful mind and heart and just you're so far from God. And, and, the, and Jesus, God, God was done. He said, my plan, my timing is this is it. Jesus comes and he reveals the truth that you can never earn rightness with God. 
And the time was right in Jesus' ascent. And when Jesus comes, He reveals that truth and He points that out and He's the only one who lives a perfect life. And then He reveals that grace, not just by the way He walked and treated people and what He taught, but also that He died in our place for undeserving, sinful, wretched, pathetic people. I know those are negative terms. Oh, God forgive Don't cancel me for that. By the way, don't let cancel culture come into the church. There's enough of that in the world. Don't let, there's enough of that in the world. Don't let it come into the church. I rebuke that. Sorry, but I do. Stop canceling brothers and sisters. Because the same grace you received, they need the same thing, and they're living by that same grace. Stop it. No more cancel culture. Don't look across the aisle or behind you and, oh, because forget that. I'm going to cancel you out of my life. God have mercy and God is still gracious to you. And so because he's gracious to you, you be gracious as well. No one's saying you don't live in truth and you don't love and you don't share the truth. No one's saying that. Stop the cancel culture because the grace you received, you've got to give. And who knows, God might use you. And bring someone to the place where they understand properly God's grace and they can live in the abundance of His grace. There's an amazing thing in Scripture, if some of you are taking notes, but in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, it defines grace in some ways, if, you, if I could put it that way. And then if you read those verses and then go back to Romans chapter 5, All the way through chapter 6 and verse 23, what happens there is that Paul interprets what that grace is like. Oh, it's amazing. Chapter 5 and 6. It's amazing. And then we're told by Peter in 2 Peter chapter 3.18 that we should grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Grow in that. But here, we know, we know that salvation is by grace alone. That is just orthodox Christianity. That is doctrine that we cannot change. You cannot go against it. And every other form of religion or church that says you've got to add works to that to be saved is false. It's false teaching. It's a lie from the pit of hell. It is by grace alone that we are saved. Salvation is by grace alone. But, towards the end of the second letter to the Corinthians, Paul here relates this grace of God to his personal experiences. As a source of strength, and it's a a source of hope for living. And so he begins first by mentioning life's realities in verse 7. He says, there was given to me a thorn in my flesh. So notice, there's first, there's, there's a reality of life. The reality of life is this. Every one of us have thorns in our life experience. The Greek word is pretty, it's, I love the word. So if you can make an association with the word, it'll stay in your head, like just because it's, it's different, right? But the, the Greek word for, for thorn here is scallops. No, not like what we pull out of the bay and eat them. Not like that. It's S-K-O-L-O-P-S, scallops, right? But it denotes something that is sharp and pointed, Right? Something that frustrates or causes irritation, right? I mean, it's kind of like getting a a splinter or a thorn in your hand. And the worst ones, it seems to me, are the tiniest ones. 
It's not the big splinters that really, oh, they hurt. Don't get me wrong. And they can go deep, right, and do damage. But the worst ones are the little tiny ones, right? You're out there on the deck, and, and you got your wood deck, and all of a sudden you run your hand across, and, and, you, and, you're like, and that thing stings like, ugh. And it's right in the pinky, right in the spot where you can't get it, like right in there or whatever. And you're looking, and you get, I get my reading glasses, and I'm like, where is that thing? I get a magnifying glass, and it's this tiny little speck. And it's under my skin, but it is so painful and annoying, and it's always reminding me that it's there. That's what Paul's talking about here, scallops. We all have a scallop. We all have this this, this thing that is sharp and pointed, and it's constantly needling and pressing in, and it's hitting that nerve just right and bothering us like crazy. And Paul says, to keep me from being conceited. See, our English language is, it, it works, right? It's, we can understand what that means. But, it, but in the original language, what he's saying, to keep me from over-elevating myself. <laughs> oh, man, we love to overestimate and to, to elevate ourselves and to put our place in a place. We all struggle with that. But to keep me from over-elevating myself. And he says, because of these great revelations. And he's talking about that earlier in the first six verses in chapter 12, about how these miraculous, if you will, amazing spiritual revelations that he's had. And he's been to places in the spiritual that you and I have probably never been to and probably never will be until we see Jesus. I don't know. But that's what he had. And so he could brag and he could be like, look at me, I've been up there. I saw direct from God. I hear directly from God. I'm preaching. I'm getting words from God. I am God's apostle and I am who I am by his grace and it's not in vain. Listen to me. I'm awesome. I know everything. I was a Jew of Jews and I was so learned in the law and all these things. And he could say, look at me. But he says, to keep me from being conceited, I was given. What? You mean God gives? A better way to understand that God allows these thorns? Yep. Yes, he does. Yes, he does. You know why? So you don't get over-elevated or over-inflated in your head. He allows these things into your life. And that's how gracious God is. Wait, that doesn't make sense. It does. That's how gracious God is. Because you know, you know how His grace is revealed in those moments when He allows you to have these struggles, these thorns, these things that irritate you and bother you and frustrate you? And you know what? Instead of watching us self-destruct by our pride, He causes us to fall into His palms. Because that's where He wants us anyway. In other words, He saves us from ourselves. And I could use a lot of that, I'll admit. Because pride is always there around the corner. What was Paul's thorn? Does anybody know? I don't know. We don't know. No one knows for sure. There are speculations of all kind. And if you take one and run with it, be careful because we don't know. And we don't need to know. Thank you, Bonnie. We don't need to know, right? Was it, was it a marriage issue? 
or because he wasn't married. Or, I mean, there's, there's all kinds of debates about all that stuff. You know, was, was it his eyesight? Because end of Galatians, he says, look how large letters I write with. Like, he didn't have readers, and he couldn't see, so he's writing in like 800 font. You know, huge. I mean, who knows? Is it that? I don't know. Did he have a limp? Did he, did he, was it the Judaizers, the false teachers, those, all those who were opposed to the gospel of grace? And they wanted to stick with the law. And they were constantly bothering the you-know-what out of him, the heck out of him. And they just frustrated. And he says, no, the gospel, and it's a boss gospel of grace. Was it actually, yes, was it actually sin or temptation? I don't know. It might have been that because if you look at Romans chapter 7 and his struggle, maybe God allowed him to struggle with that so that he could rely on God's grace and not be so proud that look at me, I'm always victorious. I'm an overcomer, and we are by his grace. We only know that Paul says that it was given to him. And the problem with humanity, the problem with you and me, is that there's, there's not this looking to God so often, right? And, and, and it's at an all-time high right now. I know that there are many words spoken in churches and among Christians and whatever, and our automatic response is like, well, let's trust God, let's pray. I believe in God. Well, you can say that. But do you really? You can say that, but do you really? And I'm not, I'm not here to question you. I'm just, it's for myself too, in those moments. I mean, wh- where are we at with that? And we, we, look, we look to all kinds of things, and these things are not wrong in and of themselves, but when they're used or replaced, and replacing God, like science and medicine, technology, and reason, even reason itself, when they stand as antichrists, they can lead us to believe that all we ever need is found in humans create, the human's creativity, invention, and then we have this freedom to use that ability to the highest degree to delete all forms of pain, suffering, and inconvenience. I don't I'm saying this because I don't believe in this expression, but good luck with that one. It's never going to happen. Unless you want to just be ripped apart and be made into a robot with artificial parts and an artificial brain, a computer trip. and I don't know. It's never going to happen. I don't care what the technology is. I don't care what the wisdom is. I don't care what the medicine is. You will never escape these things. You won't. See, pure godly character is formed by depending on God, right? So we're saved by God's grace. And now said, Paul says, there's this reality. And God sends this reality, this scallop, this, this pain, this thorn in my life that's constantly there. And it's because God wants me to depend on him. And we depend on grace, not ourselves first. I can't help but notice the similarity here with Job's story in the Old Testament, the book that's found before Psalms, and and quite possibly one of the first books ever written historically that's in the Bible, even though it's in the middle portion of the Old Testament. Probably the oldest book of the entire Bible is Job, scholars believe. Right? And he writes this. I can't, but Satan, in that story in the first chapter, Satan was the immediate cause of this difficulty. God wasn't the cause. God gave it or allowed it to happen. Boy, that, that's a whole other... Whew, that's, I, actually, in some ways, man, if I was that righteous or faithful and, and God allowed that, I, I would, that's, that's like an honor thing. Like, thank God. Satan is subject to God, the giver of this thorn. 
And Job too. Satan in the Bible records that Satan had to come to God and get permission to do anything to Job. Did you ever notice that? Maybe I'm sure a lot of you know that, but if, have you ever noticed that? He had to get permission to go do anything at all to Job. Hmm, I wonder who's boss. Who's the boss? God. God is ultimately the source of this pain in an invisible way through his allowance or permission that he gave to Satan. And he says here, it was given to me to, to buffet me. And it means it, and again, this is a harsh thing. And, and I don't mean to be given the world we live in with everything going on with violence and craziness and our world's falling apart, if you will, but God's still in control and he knows what's going on, right? But to buffet in the Greek means that you take your hand and you constantly hit somebody over and over and over again. That's what it means in the original language. Let's put it, let's give you my version. It's like the waves that are constantly crashing on the beach. Do they, do they ever stop? doesn't matter if they're this big or if they're 10 foot tall. They never stop. The waves are always lapping up on that beach. They're constantly doing something to that beach. There's constantly contact over and over and over at the the shore there, nonstop. That's what that word buffet means here. And Satan was permitted to bring this this bad deal, if you will, to Paul. And, And it wasn't God who struck Paul with this thing. But each one of us can claim, think about this, that we are better than someone else in some field or some talent or an ability, but God gives limitations to keep us right and humble. And so we read of Paul's request in verse 8. Paul's request was simple. God, please take this away. Have you ever said that to God? God, take this away. I don't know what to do. I can't reach. I can't dig in there and get it out. I can't dig in there and get it out. It's so small, but it's so painful. It won't go away, and it's not being removed, and it's not dislodging. And in fact, it feels like it's getting deeper. And God, just take it away. And Paul says that three times he cried out for the Lord for God to take it away. Was it really only three times that Paul asked, or was three just used to indicate that there were repeated pleadings? Like repetition. I'm not, we're not going to argue that either. But the point is, he asked. And after asking at a certain point, he does, get, he does get an answer. Jesus prayed three times that the cup would be taken away. You remember that? Lord, Lord if it's possible, don't, don't let me go through with this. But, but not my will, your will be done. So I don't know, but he asked repeatedly, God, please take this away. We have plenty of requests to God, don't we? Daily, weekly, monthly, maybe they've been going on for years. Like, you know, God, why do I have to work with that annoying person? I mean, I'm sorry, I know no one here says that. But some people say that. You know, why do I have to work with that annoying person? God, why can't you just change the situation in my family? God, Take away my illness. God, take away my illness. God's like, I could, I might. Who do you think you are? Who's the boss? And it seems that God isn't listening sometimes, doesn't it? Or he hasn't heard you. 
Oh, but God is always listening and he's aware. So Paul has this request, God, take it away. And then in verse 9, we see God's response. The reality is we all have thorns. And then we have this request like Paul that says, God, take this away. And God responds. And he just says this simple thing in verse 9. My grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. My gra- Just get it in your head. Get it in your heart. Get it in your spirit. My grace is sufficient for you. God was, in essence, in essence, in some ways, he was saying, no. At least not for now, no. Just drop it. For now, no. I mean, I don't know. Does that mean that you should never ask God the same thing again? No. No. You can ask God as many times as you want. And he was saying no. And let me ask you a question. What do you do when God says no? What do you do? You can respond in one of two ways. You can say, God, why not? Then you're all frazzled and freaked out and frustrated and then all of a sudden you, you, you lose sight of God's grace, by the way. Or you can accept it. But I won't accept that. I'm going to get what I want God to give me. I'm going to keep pressing. You can press, go ahead, that's fine. But will you accept where you are right now and just lean on God's grace and grow in that grace and let it abound to you? You know, Job also said in chapter 2 in, that, in, in the Old Testament, in verse 10, he says, should we accept only good things from the hand of God and never anything bad? I, I will not receive that. I, God cannot give me anything bad. No, he, doesn't, he, doesn't, he allows it because then you can depend on him and his grace grows in your life. What, will you, what are you going to do? Are you gonna, are you, how are you going to react to God's sovereignty and the fact that he's boss? God's provision is sufficient grace. In the Greek, it's arche. Arche grace. It's that continual availability. I mentioned it earlier. And it's not based. This is the best part of it all. God's grace, that sufficient grace, is not dependent. It has nothing to do with, and it's not based on your need, but it's based on His supply. That's what sufficient grace is. That grace is not based on your need. So it's like, oh, well, uh, I have such a big need now. God, do you have enough grace? No, no, it's based on his supply. It means it'll never be exhausted. It'll never run out. And it's just so huge, you can't, you can't dry it up. It's all about the amazing, sufficient grace of God. When we get, think about this, when you pray to God, when we get what we desire, it's often then, after we get what we want and God tells us, then we're like, oh yeah, God heard me. Woo-hoo, God heard me. I got what I wanted. When's the last time you said, God, you heard me. I didn't get what I wanted, and thank you, because you know what's best for me. When is the last time you did that? Because if you don't, you just may not, you may not really trust or believe that God is sovereign in complete control of your life and that his plan is exactly the way he wants it and that it is for his glory, and you're good in the end. Isn't it enough to go back to the first point I was making that we are saved by grace alone. Isn't that enough? If that's all His grace ever did, then we should be ecstatic. He wakes us up. He gives us life. He gives us food. He gives us friends. He gives us fellowship. And you can continue to list for a long, 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 long time. And God doesn't... 
God doesn't have to give you anything. And we have so much. He doesn't have to give you anything. And still we fuss and we kick and we scream like that toddler in that stroller that just won't be quiet because they don't get what they want. And Take it away, God! God says, my grace is sufficient. You're already saved. You got everything you need. I'll give you everything you need to go through it. What if the thorn in your flesh means an increase of divine grace in your life? You know, that grace, the grace might be more valuable than the answer you want. Doesn't God know what's best for you anyway? Or maybe God has something better in store for you. And what about this? What if you get what you want and then you forget about God or think that you can then boss God around? Oof, that's, that's, that's a problem. Wisdom is to understand that God is in control, wanting our total dependence upon Him to never fade. It's about, we depend on God's grace, amen? We depend on His grace. We depend on His grace. There's no other way. And then look at verses 9 and 10. Paul would have been conceited if there was no thorn. And so after hearing God say no, and in that moment, and maybe for a long time, maybe forever, I don't know, but Paul has an unbelievable, as I mentioned earlier, absurd reaction. God responds, and then so does Paul. He reacts this way. Most gladly, I would rather boast about my weaknesses. I am well content with weaknesses, insults, distresses, persecutions, and difficulties. For when I'm weak, then I am strong. See, there's two ways to help someone with a burden. One, you can take that burden completely off. Or secondly, you can strengthen their back. And strengthen their back. We just want everything taken off of us. We want the easy ride. We want nothing there to build our character and stamina, to, to strengthen our spiritual muscles and faith. No, we want none of that. We just want it all done for us as soon as we tell God. And God says, are you going to trust me and wait on me? That's what faith is all about. Even when you don't, it doesn't feel like it or seem like it, it seems like nothing, it's, everything's falling apart. Are you still believe me and that my grace is sufficient? And it gets stronger, you get stronger and stronger. God was continually going to strengthen Paul's back. He wants to strengthen yours too. See, the cross displayed power in the weakness of Christ, that God put on him this burden. The thorn led to the crucifixion of Paul's pride. I got to give in, God. I got to give in. I'm trusting you. I know it's your grace, and it's the only way I'm going to get through. Perspective is everything. It determines our attitude, which makes or breaks us, right? And this is the avenue of success. How do you look at what God gives you, even if it's a thorn? And as crazy as it sounds this morning, you and I must rely on God's grace. His grace is the source of power in your life coming by his holy spirit now who's he's given to us by by and he's and he's filled our lives with with himself if you will he gives us that power strength and even life itself right he says now the power of christ might dwell in me it's a paradox this this is another crazy thing that that the christian finds pleasure in pain or affliction or trial for the sake of christ we, run, we try to run away from it. 
God says, look, my grace is enough. And Paul said to Timothy in chapter 2, verse 1, his first epistle, be strong in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Be strong in that grace. It's interesting that God uses the word sufficient, especially when he, con- when he contrasts it to you or to me with our puny ability and then their obvious weaknesses that we have. It's so modest of God to say that because his grace is more than that. Not just sufficient, it's everything. As we prepare ourselves for communion, we tend to live our lives like little fish in the ocean, don't we? We're afraid that we're going to drink it dry. Whether you consciously think that or not, sometimes we live our lives that way, and often. God's grace is sufficient. It's everything. You need to breathe, eat, drink, and think God's grace always. Don't worry. You can't exhaust it. You won't run out. God won't run out of grace to give you. With all your weaknesses, rely on His grace and draw from Him. So have you placed your cares, your struggles, and all your weaknesses and hurts into the hands of someone stronger like like God, the boss, the Almighty. I don't know what your thorn is this morning because we all have them. That's the reality of life. And maybe, maybe you've had this request to God, take it away, and God responds and says, eh, my grace is sufficient for you. How are you reacting now? The reality is you have a thorn. Maybe it's a fear you can't overcome. Maybe it's a situation in your home or it's a rocky relationship. Maybe it's an illness. Maybe it's a temptation of sin. God's grace is sufficient to take it away or to carry you through. Maybe this morning you're sitting here and you have questions about your soul. Life after death and eternity that prick your heart and you're feeling conviction and you're realizing, I, I can't do it. I need grace. I, I, I need God. I need, I'm a sinner. And God's grace is great. And you realize that all your attempts to be strong have failed you. And your heart emptiness, there's an emptiness in your heart and your soul and your spirit that desperately needs to be filled by God. You're sitting here this morning and maybe guilt fills your life for things you've done. Or maybe it's even for things you are doing. Maybe you think that you can't be forgiven. But let me just tell you that God's grace is sufficient to make you a new person today, right now. To save you, to transform you, to make you a new creation. God's grace is sufficient for you. Now, in front of you, you have the little cups. You can can grab those if you don't mind. We'll have communion together. Yes. Yes, does anybody need a gluten-free uh, package, a gluten-free communion set. Anyone? Just raise your hand. Hold it up for a second so that Tom, Brother Tom can get them to you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul writes, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, 
This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And I'll stop there for now. You know, we can, take, we can make communion all about us. Did you know that? We can make it all about us. We can make it about us and our sin instead of Jesus and His grace. But we've never done that. Have we? We can. We can. See, this this meal right here that we're going to partake in, the bread and the cup, is for the children of God that are walking with Him. If you have not confessed Jesus as your Lord and Savior and submitted your life to Him and been forgiven of your sins by Him, don't partake. Or, if you are a child of God, And if you are willfully disobeying God, deal with that before partaking. Only you know that. But having said that, God's grace is sufficient even for your sins and shortcomings. You know, we don't don't do this, I say this, we don't eat of this meal, we don't partake once we've gotten things all right on our end and we've, we're cleansed and we're perfect and we're all right and we're good, that's, that's not why we partake. We should do that. But we eat and drink because it's not about your worthiness or about your fitness, but about how worthy Jesus is and that He is the one who makes us fit to come and sit at the table. It's not about your fitness or worthiness. This is all about the fitness and worthiness of Jesus. And can I just tell you that if you're not walking with Jesus, all you got to do is surrender to Him and say, I receive your grace, and I know that your grace is sufficient. And you can partake. He makes you fit and worthy. It's not you. You never will. And we should partake because we belong to Him and rely on His grace. Lord, thank you for your grace. Father, I pray that you would just uh, touch hearts, Lord God, move by your Spirit deep, deep, deep. Lord, so that we would understand that your grace is sufficient and help us, Lord, to partake, recognizing that it's by your grace alone that we are saved and that it is you, Jesus, who makes us fit and worthy to come before the Father, to partake because we believe and trust and know that you have died for us, you shed your blood for us, you washed away our sins, you rose again, and you justify us before God the Father. You make us right. And so we thank you that your grace is sufficient. Let's take the bread and let's eat together. Listen, one last thought. As you drink this cup, remember that Jesus' is, his blood, he paid for all your unrighteousness. And because he paid for it, listen, his, he purchased our redemption. You know that. He purchased our redemption because of his sufficient grace that he demonstrated in loving us and dying for us. Let's drink together with the cup. 
Lord, as we go this morning, help us to live only by your grace and your grace alone. Keep us humble and help us, Lord, to freely give that which we have received. In Jesus' name I ask and pray. All for your glory. Amen. Amen.